Good morning, everyone. My name is Devin Zuber. It is August 1st, and I am delighted to share the first of two lectures with you. Today's lecture is called, I have to read it, Caring for Creation, Swedenborgian Ecology. I want to start by heartily thanking the Freiburg Research Assembly and Susanna Curry in particular for the invitation to spend this week with all of you. It's been a great delight and pleasure to be the Everett K. Bray lecturer this year. And if you haven't noticed already, my kids and I are having the times of our lives. <laughs> and we felt very warmly welcomed by all of you with the new friends we've made. So thank you so much. It's a beautiful place to talk about nature and ecology with such a spectacular vista off to my right. So um, I can't think of a better place to talk about these things. My talk today will be a bit broad and rambling as a prelude to something much more focused on Thursday. And most of the material I'll be talking about you somewhat formally, somewhat informally, comes from my forthcoming book, which uh, will hopefully be out within the next 12 months with uh, UVA, University of Virginia, which is about the way that Swedenborg's theology was used by a number of American authors, writers, painters, poets, who've been important for locating an environmental imagination in the 19th century, a new way of looking at the natural world as a sacred space that became part of environmental conservation and preservation movements. So um, today we'll proceed in three distinct sections. The first part will be somewhat historical, where I'm just going to read from my book and share with you some of what I wrote last year on that remote Swedish island you saw pictures of yesterday. It's going to be a little bit academic, perhaps a bit wonky and specific with jargon particular to my field of literary criticism. So before we go there, I'm going to give you some terms up on the chalkboard that might help us uh, access some of what I'm saying. I've talked about these ideas before a lot of different audiences, um, academic, largely secular context, and it's always a great pleasure to be with fellow Swedenborgians because I don't have to explain who Swedenborg was, the importance of his work, so I, we're on common ground here, which is really a delight. After that um, historical reading that will be excerpted out of my book, I'm going to go into a more informal, uh, more conversational mode and talk about what it means to read Genesis through a Swedenborgian lens in a time of grave environmental crisis. How do we square what we know about our own spiritual regeneration, as Hugh so marvelously helped us work through with those first and second weeks of creation, in light of things like climate change? And um, in that informal discussion, I'm going to come up with uh, four theses for ways we might green Swedenborg, green Swedenborg theology. And finally, at the end, if I have time, and if I don't, Trevor's going to chop my head off. Um, no, just your time. Just my time. I'll, I'll table the reading for Thursday's lecture. So we'll, we'll just see how, how much time. And, and the third part, when I go back to reading from the book again, will be some thinking I've done on Swedenborg's Earths in the Universe, Earths in the Starry Heavens, which in my opinion is a much neglected text uh, in, in the writing. 
things. We tend to treat it as the embarrassing relative in the closet that we just pretend he never wrote about aliens and other planets, and I'm going to be approaching that text through an environmental perspective. Okay, so um, before I shift into the historical mode, uh, because this book is written largely for academics in my field of literary criticism, there's some terms and words and spaces of thought that uh, I want to put up on the board. So at the least, if you get nothing else out of this lecture, you'll have some more vocabulary for your arsenal and be uh, prose and eco-criticism. So a lot of what I do is this sort of niche field called eco-criticism, which is a fusion of ecology and criticism. And basically, all that's involved in this is looking at texts and how they've constructed ways of approaching the natural world. How do they represent uh, the other than human, the more than human, uh, the natural spaces around us, and become part of different ways of imagining um, our relationship to nature. And it's been a thriving sort of cottage industry in literary criticism and cultural studies for about 20 years or so beginning in the, in the US with a book by Lawrence Buell on Thoreau and the way Thoreau helped shift environmental consciousness in the US. I'm also going to be alluding to here and there to the Anthropocene. Has anyone here in the room heard of this word before? Yeah. Burp has Nancy. Nancy, could you do a, like a quick down and dirty take? I understand take of that it was That's right. So when we think about dating the Earth in geological time, one of the categories of measuring um, radical shifts in climate and geology is in terms of epochs. Um, the Pleistocene, the Holocene. We're in the Pleistocene moment right now, which is sort of after the last ice age ended up to the present. And there's a lively um, debate among uh, Earth scientists and geologists right now to officially end the Pleistocene and have a new era called the Anthropocene due to climate change. That we have fundamentally altered the planetary DNA in a way that with the addition of carbon, the destabilizing of ecosystems, it's going to alter the geological record. Our thumbprint is so heavy it makes a permanent indelible mark onto things. So this is um, going to be decided, I think, in the next two or three years by international bodies of, of geologists and climate scientists if we're going to use this as a new handle into defining the future that is to come of, uh, who knows, a lot of questions about what, what the planet will look like. Uh, within eco-criticism, two sort of current fields of thought and theory that I situate Swedenborg in relationship to are post-humanism. Don't read that as anti-humanism because Swedenborg is so thoroughly anthropocentric and, and full of a theological anthropology. This is a loosely defined area of philosophy and critical theory that's interested in uh, Rodney ethics, 
beyond the human being at the center of everything. To put it succinctly. The other area in eco-criticism that I play around with in my book is something called the new materialism. And the Sweden word is we hear this phrase and we think, oh, materialism, bad, bad, bad. Who wants to be a materialist? That's not quite what it means. It doesn't mean um, new clothes, new refrigerators, new cars. But a movement in philosophy and ethics to think about matter, about stuff, as not just dead objects out there for about 250, 300 years, our modern paradigm has been to treat nature as a bunch of lifeless stuff available for resource extraction. And a lot of the thinkers and theorists in the new materialisms argue that we need to approach matter as something vibrant, as alive, as having agency of its own and doing stuff in interesting ways. So there's a lot of theological work happening in the new materialisms. Some of you um, I know are readers of Alfred North Whitehead and process theology that's very active in the new materialism. So that's something else I'm going to be keen um, in my chapter. Any questions before we get started? Okay. So now we'll go to the first historical mode with a section from the book. And then we'll move into a more uh, loose and open conversation about moving into a Swedenborgian ecology, greening Swedenborg. There are many arguments about our ecological predicament that anatomize, that blame or account for everything from Judeo-Christianity to secularity to the mind-body dualism that has underwritten much Western philosophy since René Descartes. Too often these critiques have simplified complex questions in order to assign easy blame, typified by Lynn White's argument made in 1967 that Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has seen and a cause of our environmental crisis. I'll come back to White later on. This has been a very significant argument within theory that the command in Genesis to have dominion over the earth and the birds and the fishes of the sea has licensed humankind to exploit nature. And there's been rich theological debates to reconsider the Hebrew word there, not as dominion, but more one of stewardship, that the earth is a gift that we need to have uh, a different kind of relationship to. Whatever the cause, our unfolding Anthropocene is inevitably entangled in the complexities generated by what it is we mean by the term modernity, both as an unfinished, ongoing process and as a historical bracket used to demarcate a particular relationship to the past. Modernity, imagined or otherwise, has been remarkably persistent in presenting a, a vision of the world as dead, lifeless, and meaningless, as first prominently diagrammed in Max Weber's account of the disenchantment and Zauberung, for those of you who speak German, disenchantment and Zauberung of a world that had been vacated by God and transcendent meaning. If the teeming stuff of life was not anchored 
to any theological coordinates, according to Max Weber and his followers in sociology, the progressive efforts of science and technology were at least capable of mastering it. And nature, all that was not human, not culture, could be completely subsumed and controlled by human rationality. Nature became both a blank, a void of divine absence, awaiting human inscription by cartography, the encyclopedia, other things of the Enlightenment, but also a bank, a stock of apparently inexhaustible resources awaiting extraction by the ingenuity of commerce, that old Protestant work ethic that Weber talked about hard at work. So blank and bank is something the 18th century has bequeathed us. Or so the standard story goes. Smack dab in the middle of that modern project that begins in the 18th century is the life and work of this fellow right here, Emanuel Swedenborg, which upsets many of our settled assumptions about the disenchantment within modernity. My book is about Swedenborg's visionary theology and how it came to operate as an agent of re-enchantment for a group of American authors and artists who were associated with the appearance of environmental imagination in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Swedenborg, the translator of nature into thought, as Emerson put it, is a forgotten vital source for a current of proto-ecological ideas that streamed out of Concord transcendentalism, we're quite close to Walden Pond here more or less, closer at least than I am in California to Henry David Thoreau's walking grounds, that streamed out of Concord transcendentalism into broader rippling circles of conservation and preservation that marked the emergence of modern American political environmentalism and other forms of dark green nature, religion, and spirituality. Ambivalently, Swedenborg's legacy is also embedded with, within trying to figure out what the Anthropocene is. His career as a leading Scandinavian natural scientist led to formative contributions in geology, crystallography, and mineralogy. The practical implications of this work, summarized in his mechanistic magnum opus, the Principia, which is pictured here, led to remarkable innovations in smelting technology and the extraction of metal ores from the earth. James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine in the 1760s, the machine that generated the industrial revolution and carbon-based capitalism that we still live in with today, was but one of several people who adapted and used material from Swedenborg's Principia for their inventions. As both a mechanistic natural philosopher whose ideas are constitutive to carbon-based economies of modernity, but also as a mystic whose organic theosophy imbued later forms of romantic ecology that resisted the Industrial Revolution, some of the contradictions and paradoxes in Swedenborg's own life are things we still live with today. I think we can learn a lot by studying the shape of both Swedenborg in his moment and into the 19th century, some of those tensions. Here I am using an iPhone that was probably made by children in a factory in China with ore that was mined, uh, not sustainably, 
from somewhere in Africa to show you these images. So as I'm talking about environment and ecology and a better ethic towards nature, I'm using the very technologies of modernity that are part of the problem we find ourselves on on this planet. So here we are. These are, these are my homies, the people at the heart of my book. For Ralph Waldo Emerson on the left, Sarah Orne-Jewett, a main author. I hope some of the main people in the room recognize Sarah Orne-Jewett here in the middle. And on the far right, does anyone recognize the final figure there? John That's John Muir. All three of these figures had sustained deep and profound engagements with Swedenborgian theology. And all three of them, in their own various ways, are part of a greening of 19th century literature and the new sense of nature as a sacred space. It's most acute in the case of Muir, as many of you know, is a key instigator of modern environmentalism through his preservation efforts to protect uh, Yosemite Valley and other spaces in California from development. Swedenborg's ideas enabled an immanental cosmology that made nature vibrant in Jane Bennett's new materialist sense of this term as sacred and enchanting language of things, as it was phrased by Samson Reed, an early New England Swedenborgian romantic. That's the title of my book, A Language of Things, which comes from this early Swedenborgian text from 1822. In some cases, to engage with this tutelary language of nature, to attempt to describe and translate it into essays, poems, and paintings that would correspond, a signal term for Swedenborg, between inner and outer, between the fact of feeling and perception, and the phenomenal richness of experience outside of ourselves, could inculcate an early American environmental impulse to conserve and preserve. Okay, I begin my book not with these three, but with this gentleman here. Who are we looking at in this slide? Larry, all right, bingo. All of you get a hug or a candy bar after my talk. Your choice, that's right. To understand Swedenborg's place in American environmental imaginaries, we can begin with one of his earliest readers and promulgators, a figure invoked today as an icon of early conservation and proto-environmentalism. Towards the end of the 18th century, John Chapman, better known by his folk moniker, Johnny Appleseed, began his westward peregrination towards the Mississippi through the still then frontier of the Ohio River Valley. A committed pacifist and vegetarian, dressed in motley homespun rags, reputedly walking through the rough woods in his bare feet, Appleseed came to be revered by local Native Americans as a medicine man of great power. As he traversed the Midwest, establishing various land holdings that he cultivated into orchards, he began his famous distribution of fruit seeds and apple seedlings. In addition to leaving his namesake seeds at the homes of various families he would stay with, Chapman occasionally left behind books and pamphlets by and about Swedenborg. And as we know, he would tear out whole sections of heaven and hell and arcana Celestia and pass them out in the frontier. Good news, right fresh from heaven, Chapman is said to have announced to the strangers he met in the American wilderness as he excitedly shared the pages of Swedenborg's mystical theology with them. We should pause and just observe how odd and bizarre 
this is. The American frontier in the late 18th century is the most illiterate space to be. So here is this figure handing out not just biblical tracts, but Swedenborg translated from his Neo-Latin into English. So it's, it's just an incredible, um, incredible story. Johnny Appleseed's forward thinking, his planting and reforestation for the generations to come, were important early 19th century precursors of modern ecological sustainability, paralleling similar forestry practices of Nachhaltigkeit in Germany. While the greening of Appleseed is surely much of a later 20th century construct, and his name continues to be used for a number of modern day environmental projects, such as the Johnny Appleseed Junior Ecology Club. Is anyone here a member or was a member of the Johnny Appleseed Junior Ecology Club? No, it's sort of a Midwest East Coast thing. It is rarely recalled how this green archetype of Americana was actively engaged with Swedenborg's visionary teachings. Indeed, Appleseed's readings in Swedenborg were responsible for many aspects of his character that lent to his subsequent incorporation into the mythical roots of American environmental thought. His vegetarian principles extended to legendary abstention from the killing of any sentient life, from rattlesnakes to wasps, mosquitoes, and flies. Appleseed purportedly would just let them feast or bite or hit him. He would not kill even a mosquito. Such anomalous, strange behavior on the frontier made Chapman the brunt of many jokes, as the historian Robert Price notes. And Chapman acquired early on a folk reputation as the American St. Francis of Assisi. So if you were at the Freiburg Church on Sunday for my sermon, there's another little circle back to, to birds and preaching to nature. Chapman's benevolent attitude towards non-human nature is not at all surprising, writes Price, when we recall how Chapman gleaned from Swedenborg, quote, how all things in the world exist from a divine origin, clothed with such forms in nature as enable them to exist there and perform their use, and thus corresponding to higher things. That's a paraphrase from Divine Love and Wisdom. In this earliest visual representation of Chapman known to exist, a drawing from an 1862 history of Midwestern pioneers. This is long after Appleseed's death. So uh, this begins the romanticization of Appleseed into an icon of uh, American culture. You see Chapman standing barefoot in the woods, his left hand cradling a young apple sapling. If you look carefully, tucked into his homespun overalls, a large bulky book peeks above the waistline. Seemingly incongruous with the rustic character of everything else in the image that tells us we are in a wilderness context. This book is likely meant to denote one of Chapman's beloved Swedenborg volumes, already by this point an important part of the growing Appleseed legend. And to pause here, I think one reason why, even though 19th century historians take note of Swedenborg and Appleseed, there's a sanitizing that happens in the 20th century that reaches an acme with Disney's cartoon version of Appleseed. Uh, and you know, we have our wonderful uh, blessing we sing that comes from that film, but the film does in no way do any justice to what a unique, um, wonderfully bizarre and weird figure Appleseed was. 
As the environmental author and critic Michael Pollan writes, Pollan, who's a fellow Berkeleyan, some of you might know his Botany of Desire, The Omnivore's Dilemma, he's a big food writer. Pollan writes, Chapman's Swedenborgian beliefs must have lit up the whole landscape. The rivers and trees, the bears and wolves and crows, even the mosquitoes with a divine glow. Chapman's mystical teachings veer about as close to pantheism and nature worship as Christianity in America has dared to venture. It's a very interesting statement. A prominent contemporary historian, Swedenborg enables mystical teachings that veer about as close to pantheism and nature worship as Christianity has ventured. Later on, we'll talk more about that because Swedenborg has some very clear ways he says pantheism, bad. Nature worship, bad. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, how we square that with this moment in Holland's reading of Appleseed. Okay, I think I'll probably um, not go more into the particular chapters. My book follows a historical thread after a long chapter on Swedenborg and Swedenborgian theology where I embed his thought and his thinking within some of these turns in eco-criticism, post-humanism, and, and new materialism. I then turn to Emerson, um, followed by a chapter on Muir, and I conclude my book with um, Sarah Orne Jewett. And we'll focus much more tightly on Thursday on Sarah Orne Jewett and some of her stories about main landscape that for her were numinous with the sacred enabled by her reading of Swedenborgian correspondence. So we have a, a wonderful local um, author, writer, critic, who was involved in bird conservation, who got to her way of thinking and writing in part through her relationship to Swedenborg through Theophilus Parsons, who some of the people who read about church history will know well too. Get about 20 minutes left, so we'll see, see how I can how I can fare. So how do we read Genesis in light of environmental catastrophe and climate change? And I don't want to make an argument about climate change. I'm going to just plant myself with International scientific bodies, for me, there's no debate. Anthropogenic climate change is a fact. But even if that's not your particular cup of tea, just think about the plastic swirl in the Pacific Ocean that's bigger than many states on the eastern seaboard that has disintegrated into such fine particles that plastic is now embedded in our food chain. Um, and, and you find it in tuna that is canned and, and that we use in, in the state. So, or um, some of you might know Elizabeth Colbert's recent work. Uh, if you look at how many species are dying as I speak uh, every day, uh, every week, every month, we are in the midst of a sixth great extinction. There have been five times in the Earth's history where thousands of species have been wiped out by meteors, volcanoes, rapid fluctuations, fluctuations in sea level rise. Colbert 
makes a very convincing argument that won the Pulitzer Prize last year that we are in the midst of a sixth great extinction that's different because it's anthropogenic. It's caused by humans. It's not a volcano. It's not, uh, not, she doesn't even really go into climate change so much per se. It's about what we have done in the last 150 years. So the news is often grim. What could a post-apocalyptic theology by Emanuel Swedenborg have to offer in terms of hope for this kind of scenario? What, what do we do with um, the creation story through a Swedenborgian lens in light of the environment? Here again, I put up an image of um, Isaac Watts' steam engine, which is part of the Industrial Revolution and sort of the modernity we still live within, just to remind us how Swedenborg's theology has a strong green hue that leads into these romantic authors I talk about, but there's also an instrumentalization in the way his ideas are part of that modernity. That's part of the problem um, in complex kinds of ways. So when environmental historians and eco-critics look at theology in the 18th century, they tend to make two critiques. And I think these critiques can be equally extended to Swedenborgian theology. And they demand of us a more constructive approach uh, to think about how we lodge this work in relationship to some of these crises I've, I've sketched out. Um, I didn't put that slide in. Um, the first of these critiques is anthropocentrism, that the human is at the pinnacle and the center of the cosmos in the same way medieval astronomy, before we knew more about the solar system, placed the sun at the center of everything. The human um, is the be-all and end-all of creation. The second critique that's often made has often been turned, been termed cornucopianism, or, a, or cor a cornucopia approach to the natural world. Cornucopia in the sense of that mythical horn from classical mythology that is abundant and never ending and spilling out with fruits and vegetables. For the younger people in the room, you know cornucopia is from Thanksgiving. Sometimes you have that as a decoration on your table or a church with the abundance of harvest coming out of the cornucopia. It's a common presumption in the 18th century that Swedenborg shares that the natural world is an endless resource. It's not finite. Um, there's no sense of limitations to what one can do. He's on the cusp of using science to understand limited resources and, and problems and questions of sustainability in, um, I had to check the date, 1798, Thomas Malthus in England articulates uh, what we often call for shorthand the population bomb, a worry that the numbers of people on the globe, if they continue to reproduce at their rates, they soon will exhaust the forests and the rivers and the streams. So that, that is an idea which we sort of take for granted today. It didn't appear until after Swedenborg was dead in, in 1798. Um, 
shortly after Swedenborg's death too, in Romanticism, for the first time in the imaginative spaces of literature, you begin to have people imagining the destruction of humankind and the death of the planet, not through God, not through some supernatural force, but through humans themselves. Probably the best known example of this is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1818, which in many ways is sort of the first science fiction novel, taking godlike powers, using science, and building this monster. If you've read Frankenstein, you don't really get this from any of the many film adaptations. If you've read Frankenstein, one reason why Dr. Frankenstein refuses to make a mate for the monster is because he imagines this super race of creatures creating a vast race above and beyond the human that would wipe out the earth, that would destroy all of humankind. You take it for granted, you look at the Hollywood blockbusters this summer, there's sort of one apocalyptic scenario after another where humans mess up and the planet burns out or explodes or we have to go to another planet um, to start life again on Mars or wherever. This really begins in the 19th century, shortly after Swedenborg's death. So, to put on our Swedenborgian constructive theology hats, um, we can think about how there are ways some of these critiques made of theology in the 18th century um, squarely land within the work. The purpose of creation is a heaven from the human race, to sort of directly quote a, a refrain you find. And it's a refrain I like a lot. It's very beautiful. The purpose of creation is uh, angels from this earth on this earth. Well, it's anthropocentric. Is there a way we can green that or make it accord with a better environmental ethic? Um, Swedenborg often says things like, imagine this is a bumper sticker in the back of your car, especially in you know the green environmental state of Vermont, where some of you are from. Now since nature begins from this sun, and since everything that arises from it and is sustained by it is called natural, it follows that nature and absolutely everything in nature is dead. Nature seems to be alive in us and in animals because of the life that visits it and animates it. So, it's a, such a rich statement. On the surface, one might be repelled. What? Who want, are we again in a dead and disenchanted world that Faber and others sort of anatomize? Not really. Swedenborg has that um, subclause. It seems that way, but it's alive because of a force that visits it and animates it. So to move towards wrapping things up and leaving a little bit of space for engagement and questions, I think there are four things, four theses to propose for being constructive theologians and greening Swedenborg. And for the last of these, 
I'm going to go back to my text, because I think I have time, and read you a little bit from my thinking about Earths and the universe. The first of my theses is that when we contextualize Swedenborg, we have to pay attention to the garden. For so long, this is treated as window dressing. The lustus, the property on Sodermalm, um, isn't that quaint? I would argue that the writing of the arcana, which dovetails perfectly with the creation of his garden space, is important for that thinking and that writing. And we're just beginning to think about this. There's been some wonderful work in Swedenborg studies by Kristen King, um, Jonathan Rose, and others that think about the central way gardens function as a metaphor in Swedenborg's theology. And not just as metaphors, if you paid attention to the beautiful frontispieces and end pieces that the New Century Edition is producing, they're filled with images of people growing things in gardens. And there's a lot to suggest that Swedenborg took tremendous effort and care and attention engraving and illustrating those frontispieces himself. They're unique. You only find them in, in Swedenborg's theology. Some of them. Others are sort of serial things you can see the printer stuck in. But some of the garden images I, I had on my first page go way back to the start. For those of you who have not seen this before, this is an example of um, something you find in uh, Divine Love and Wisdom, I believe, and a few of the Arcana volumes. It appears in several places. And we have somebody digging in the dirt. This was more than a metaphor for Swedenborg. Even though he was a very wealthy person, um, and had a, a, a cook and a gardener, we know he got on his hands and knees and weeded and pruned and took tremendous effort for his green space in a way that it became the talk of the town. People would go to the garden, not just because they heard about this infamous character who could talk to angels and dead people, but because it was a, an incredibly rare space with beautiful things in it. So, how is the writing and the thinking on the word braided with the lived experience of a garden? This is one obvious way we could think about greening Swedenborg through context. Um, the second thesis I want to make for greening Swedenborg is to pay more attention to influx. On the one hand, Swedenborg seems very Neoplatonic. The spiritual world is here. The natural world is there. The natural world is dead and lifeless. The natural sun is dead. But if we look at how correspondences connect those two realms together, there's a constant flow and emanation of spirit into matter in a way that they're inextricable from one another. Swedenborg has a lot to offer for paralleling more modern developments in process theology and other immanental kinds of cosmologies. A useful word here, uh, 20 minutes ago, 
I read that quote from Michael Pollan about pantheism, right? With Swedenborg, I think it's more useful to think about his work as panentheistic. And I can give a hat tip to George Dole, who, in his dissertation on Swedenborg, talks about this. So there's, there's been a track record for framing Swedenborg in this particular way. I'll just put this up on the board, because it's, it's kind of clunky. Pantheism, um, or as Swedenborg would have understood it in the 18th century, he would have called it nature worship, is identifying divinity with material stuff. God is literally in all things. This chair is sacred, just like her is sacred. Uh, God is um, embedded in the physical matter of stuff, in a way. Um, Swedenborg has his harshest spots to say on nature worship in the sense about the sun, that worship of the sun is the most egregious kind of uh, pantheism and nature worship out there. In the, so that's, that's one extreme. On the other extreme is uh, a Neoplatonic, coming out of Greek classical philosophy, view of the natural world as simply a pale shadow of a much better spiritual realm. And in the Western tradition, sometimes this has led to a sense that the natural world is corrupt, it's base. In Gnostic forms of Christianity that were heavily invested in Plato, like Swedenborg was, there's a um, evil is in the physical matter. It's corrupt. It needs to be put off to ascend to a higher, better, static spiritual world. Swedenborg doesn't go there either. So there's a turn in between those two things. Pan and theism, and when you put the E in here between pan and theism, it makes the meaning in Greek of becoming, of flow, that nature of itself might be dead, but with the divine and spiritual flowing into it, it's enlivened, and it's a container for the sacred divinity. And if you push, um, on this term, it's very interesting. It's had a big revival in eco-theology in the 20th and 21st century. It goes back to a German romantic theologian, a guy named Krause, K-R-A-U-S-E, uh, who I talk about in my book a little bit, who read Swedenborg. So the father of this term that's become important for um, green theology, uh, there's a Swedenborgian strand in it too, for, for Krause, um, thinking about panentheism. So that's number two, influx, panentheism. The garden, panentheism. Um, and I won't have time to read, as I wanted to, or my Earth in the Universe stuff. So maybe on Thursday, we can pair that. Let me move ahead to my final two theses I want to make. Um, and this, this might be you know, a little controversial. It might provoke some disagreement and constructive dialogue. We need to acknowledge Swedenborg had bad science. That if we think about translating his work forward to the 21st century, 
we have to deal with the fact that some of his ideas about the natural world were based on wrong assumptions. Um, there are several examples. I think the most um, well-known one in the room to give are his ideas about how the soul comes from the father and is solely formed by the semen uh, in the female. The female is simply a, a, a vessel. And as proof of this, he pulls up sort of junk racial ideas about if a black man is with a white woman, the child that is born of that union will be black. Whereas if it's a white father and a black mother, the child that is born of that union, because the soul goes to the father, will be a white person. So <laughs> it's always sort of embarrassing. That's, that's in divine providence. Some people know probably what I'm referring to, 277. And in, in the Swedenborgian tradition, but also in Swedenborg's studies, we tended to have a bit of a hagiography, um, a claim that Swedenborg was the best scientist in the 18th century and a pioneer in this and that. He was, but he also was sloppy um, and made a lot of mistakes in his math. Um, one example here, there's a great book, I think the best book on Swedenborg science out there today by a, a historian is David Donner, D-U-N-E-R. He's a historian in Sweden at Lund. And David points out how Swedenborg couldn't give up his attempt to get this big fat prize from the British government for finding longitude. There was a, an award that the um, Royal Academy put out to give a very large sum of money to the person who could figure out how to sail better using longitude. So there was a great rush, and there's a book written about this, I think called The Great Race. And Swedenborg, like other 18th century people, got involved in this. And he was convinced that if he looked at the movement of the moon, I have a slide here of that chart. Yeah, so this is, this is from Swedenborg's little book about how to find longitude by measuring the distance between the Earth and the moon. He publishes this in 1721. Immediately, the science community says, your calculations are totally wrong. You've got this off. He persists, publishes it again in 1727, sends it to the people in England, says, here I am. I figured it out. I say, no, no, you're, you're clearly wrong. He doesn't alter his calculations at all. He sends it in in 1754, so after he's writing theology, after the illumination, in his mystical phase, he still is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show them. And then finally, in 1766, he sends in the book again um, to the committee, and they reject it once more. So he certainly was persistent, perhaps stubborn. That's a word that, that David Duner uses in, uses in his book. Um, and it's just, it's just a moment where um, he's not the thorough, committed empiricist in his science we sometimes have assumed him to be in our um, claims for his important science work. So I think we need to be better uh, historians and look at the actual record and think about, well, if Swedenborg knew what we know now through science, nunc licet, now it is permitted to enter intellectually into the truths of faith. You know, we have a 
Proud claimed to be connected to science. Well, how would he respond to this sixth great species extinction where the plastic in the ocean or climate change uh, in dialogue with the scientists? And I'm at the end. Um, my, fourth, my fourth thesis has to do with um, reading Swedenborg for wonderful ways in which the category of the human is expanded in interesting ways. And this is why I uh, do a particular reading of Earths in the Universe in my chapter on, on Swedenborg. Swedenborg writes that um, there is something of the human reflected or irradiated in every aspect of the universe. Can we, can we really process that? That something of the human is in the cosmic DNA far beyond the Earth and our solar system. It's, it's, it's out there. Um, and maybe on Thursday, before we go to Jewish and birds and ornithology, I'll do a little detour into life on other planets. So thank you for your time and your attention. Discussion group at 11, we can get into more detail of any of the comments that you have burning to comment on.